Good morning. Um, so my object is to provoke, in the sense of provoke discussion. There are about 40 slides here at the KITP average of six minutes per slide. This means we'll be here for four hours. So basically, the, the talk is going to be divided into, well, we're not going to be, obviously. <laughs> the, the talk is divided into two halves. There's stuff at the beginning, which is um, sort of thinking and discussing and meant to provoke discussion. And then there's stuff at the end, which is actually about experiments. And so my proposal would be that if you're approximately equally interested in both, after an hour, we would just, however far we've gone through the philosophical stuff, we'll just quit doing that and talk about experiments. Does that sound reasonable? Yes. Or we could just skip the philosophical stuff altogether. That's also an option. Okay. This is a test slide. Okay. That's the title. Um, and so one of the questions is, what does it actually mean to be multicellular? So here is a very simple form of multicellularity. This is a green alga called Pandorina. It's composed of either 8 or 16 cells. So it's a geometric number. All the cells are identical. They have flagelli, which are sort of just visible. Up here, but none of the cells are different from any other of the cells, but the cells are stuck together. So if your definition of multicellularity is it's a bunch of cells from the same species stuck together, this is a multicellular organism. But it's quantized, the number, uh, yeah. and it's of the, only these two things, 8 and 16, did you say? Yeah, and, and they're, they're related species. Um, even Chlamydomonas, it turns out, which is thought of as a single-cell organism, what actually happens is, is clammy divides two or three times sort of inside the same husk and then breaks out of it. So you could think of it even as being um, having a multicellular segment to its life. And again, in that case, it is quantized. The, the, the cell divisions are synchronous. So the number of cells goes up as powers of two. So this is this beautiful organism, Volvox carteri, which um, and there's not a scale bar here, but the cells in Volvox, or the somatic cells, which are these cells here, are about the same size as this. So this is a much bigger organism. And it has a separation between reproductive and somatic cells. So that when this organism dies, these, all these small cells will die with it. But these are germ cells which are starting to divide, and they will be the next generation of box And within the cells in this circle here, there'll be the same differentiation. The number of germ cells is quantized, powers of two. And there is, there's a, they are relatively regularly distributed or, um, across one half of this sphere. Okay, So this is the separation between germline and some that there are some cells that will live forever. And there are other cells that will die when this spherical individual dies. And the somatic cells are arranged on a, on a shell? There's nothing in the, in the inside? Yeah, like the whole thing is empty. It's hollow. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a sphere. And these things are relatively closely related. And so people get excited because they argue that there's a sort of logical progression where you might understand some of the things that give rise to multicellularity by looking at differences between them. But that stage in the past where their lineage is separated is quite far back. 
and therefore there are problems which I'll address in a little bit about inferring what caused events from looking at present day evidence. So by lineage you mean genetic? Yeah, they're phylogenetic. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. And there's even some question from phylogenetic analysis of, of this clade as to whether this form of multicellularity has actually risen independently more than once in, in this part of the algal lineage, and there's some controversy about that. Okay? And this is multicellularity in all its glory. This is Johnny Depp. Okay? And now there's lots. And, and the difference between Johnny Depp and, and Volvox, in except in terms of aesthetic elegance, um, you get to choose which you prefer, is that in Volvox, amongst the somatic cells, they all do exactly the same thing, whereas there are cells here for applying eye makeup to. <laughs> So I'm just going to formally point out what I just pointed out. That there are three aspects of multicellularity, and I think lots of the discussion about multicellularity gets a little hung up because different people are using different definitions of what it means to be multicellular. One is cells are all stuck together, independently of whether there are genetic or physical or gene expression differences between them. Then there is the idea that lineages that have a multicellular form may go through single-celled propagules. So these are frog eggs. These are not frog sperm, they're human sperm, right? which is what we do. But there are also asexual forms of reproduction of various sorts of plants and animals, things like hydra, which bug do, where they don't go through single-celled propagules. A large individual made up of many cells generates smaller individuals which already have many cells and where the cells are already differentiated to form different functions. And last but not least is there's this idea of division of labor. So these are, this is a picture of human neurons. And this is just a reminder that there are many different types of cells in your body. Estimates depends on how finely you subdivide them, go from 100 on and off. Um, might be worth also saying that uh, asexual reproduction doesn't eliminate the possibility of passing through a single cell propagules. You can have asexual Thank you. Absolutely. You, still so, sexual reproduction always goes through single cell propagules. Asexual reproduction can or cannot, depending on who you are, and, and, and we'll look at the life cycle of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and you, you will see single cell propagules there. Okay. So there are questions we can ask about multicellularity. We can ask what do we mean about it, which at least at some level I would claim that we just covered. We can ask why did it evolve? What, what are the selective forces that drove the evolution of, of multicellularity? And I'll talk a little bit about that. We can ask how mechanistically did it evolve? What are the changes in the sequence of DNA and the structure of proteins? and organization of gene expression networks and signaling pathways and so on and so forth that produce these transitions. We can ask how often it has evolved. So um, I'm not an expert in this. I'm simply quoting numbers from the literature. The assertion is, by looking at a phylogenetic analysis of different extant creatures, is that multicellularity has evolved on the order of 20 times independently. So plant multicellularity animal multicellularity, fungal multicellularity, for example, are all independent evolutions of multicellularity. And it then raises interesting questions about whether the answers to these questions are the, are the same for all those independent evolutions or they are different for different ones. Um, 
we can ask and we'll talk about today, what are the roles of experiment and observation in answering these questions? And ditto, what are the roles of experiment and theory in, in answering these questions? Yes. How would you define a unicellularity? Um, I would define it as an organism. Okay, so, so I guess we have to be very careful about this. There, I think you can make complicated definitions and operational definitions. The operational definition is you have a beaker, the beaker sloshing around. When cells divide, the two daughter cells separate from each other, and cells are no closer to the cells that they are most related to that on average than the ones that they are most distantly related to. That's an operational definition. And so, in, so one of the things I suspect that lies behind your question is if you look at a quote unquote single cell microorganism like E. coli or yeasts or chlamydomonas and you let it grow on a solid surface so it makes a colony, right? A little, in yeast it's actually relatively close to hemispherical, at least when the colonies are small. Aggregate of cells, are those properly thought of as a bunch of single cell organisms sitting very close to each other? Or are there interactions between them where, in particular, for example, there are unequal exchanges of material that make that effectively a multicellular organism? And I think there are all sorts of interesting questions about that. And, and I guess in this talk, for the most part, I'm sidestepping those. And so I'm going to imagine that this talk is constructed, if you like, in a biofilm and solid agar free universe. Okay? But, but it's a good point to bring up that all those things are complicated. Yes? How does uh, prokaryote uh, multicellularity fit into this picture? Um, I think in the, I mean, it relates to the thing I just said to Nicola, which is that, you know, there's a, I mean, it's a really interesting question, which we have been interested in, but have never really figured out a successful way to attack, which is that if you look at a colony of Saccharomyces cerevisiae or E. coli, or if you wanted bacillus subtilis growing on a plate, there are two questions you could ask. Are all the cells expressing the same set of genes? That is, is there differentiation or is there not? And if there is differentiation and cells are doing different things, <clears throat> is there any extent to which those different things are helping the colony as a whole? So the coefficient, you know, if you do what microbiologists like to do is hope that each colony starts from a single cell. The coefficient of relatedness, at least by some definitions, for cells in that colony is one. So that if any cell helps other cells and incurs a cost, as long as that cost is less than the sum of the benefits that are given to other cells, you should actually favor that over evolution. And things like that should be going on. And at least try as we might, we have not been able to come up with a good experiment to falsify the idea that things like that are happening within colonies. Right? And there are clearly examples in, in um, things like Mixococcus. So there are bacteria that have social phases and swarm together and make fruiting bodies and make spores. And so they clearly are complicated forms of multicellularity. Okay. So does that go some way towards answering your question? Yeah, I mean, maybe Streptomyces has some examples, but right. I think your point. Yeah, and, and, yeah and, and even for things like Bacillus, if you look at isolates from the wild rather than things that have been in the lab for a long time, 
and you put them on plates that have low percentage of others, all sorts of interesting structures form, including things that stick up and, and spores form at the top of, and, and, and there are all sorts of interesting questions. So, so these examples like that, or dictyostelium, you, you view them as multicellular organisms or single? Well, they have single cell. I, I, I guess what I would regard them as is this sort of operational definition. So if you grow dictyostelium in a flask and you shake a shaker, shaker, it's single cell. Right? When you put it on a plate and starve it and they emit waves of cyclic AMP and they all get together and make fruiting bodies, they are forming a multicellular aggregate and so part of their, their life cycle has all these complicated things that involve interaction with who gets into the stalk and the spore and so on and so forth and is concerned with social biology. And in part of their life, they appear to be independent units foraging in the woods. Right? So I regard it as a mixture. I was just wondering, probably relates to that, but is there anything known in this smallpox organism about genetic diversity within, among the cells within one organism, or are they all the same? Well, so they arise, they arise from a single cell. Right? So it goes through a single cell propagule. So those guys, that sphere will break up and the little sort of baby spheres will expand and grow out and produce their own germ cells and go on. There is a sexual phase, but it, it can propagate asexually. Um, and the assumption is there may be diversity of gene expression within an individual. And at some low rate, there will be genetic diversity because mutations happen. Um, I don't know what the genome size is off the top of my head, but so let's imagine for the sake that was yeast, that it made a structure of about a thousand cells, which is, is roughly the number involved. The mutation rate in yeast and the genome size is such that there will be a nuclear DNA mutation about once every thousand cell division. So if, the, if yeast made something like that, one of the cells would be different by a point mutation on average from the others. So the level of genetic diversity is not very high. So we investigate multicellularity by a combination of two approaches. So the first of which is engineering. We actually try and engineer organisms to change what they do. So, so we decide what the behavior we want is, and um, we then try and engineer it. So if you like, you can call this synthetic biology. It is not synthetic biology of the sort designed to save the world and keep sea level from rising or anything like that. It's synthetic biology in the sort of Richard Feynman spirit where it is supposedly true that when he died on his blackboard were written the words, what I cannot create, I cannot understand. And, and my history as a scientist has had a reasonable amount of that, of trying to build things to see if you understand them correctly. So this, if you like, is hypothesis testing by reconstruction. And I'll give you an example of, of it as we go along. Um, it partially, but as limited by human ingenuity and technical tools we have available, <coughs> defines a space of possibilities. And in our hands, we found it a useful preliminary ex exercise that helps lay the groundwork for studies in experimental evolution. And again, I'll explain exactly what I mean by that as I go along. And experimental evolution, where we try and make the smallest possible number of preconceptions. Here, obviously, we have to make more because engineers have to decide which of various options they're going to take at each stage along the pathway. 
And this partially defines the space of possibilities that organisms could take. It's only partially because, first of all, we start with a genome that we inherit. It's a particular laboratory strain of yeast that we do everything with. Um, and evolution is obviously clearly very strongly determined by previous history, and some other organisms might do different things. But much more importantly, um, what sort of selection? Is this thing, can you read this if you're there, the last line? Doesn't seem like this was designed by an engineer, this setup, I have to say. Yes, this. Okay? That uh, we're sort of limited by human ingenuity, and we're also limited by organismal cheating. And I, I mean a very specific form of cheating here. I don't mean social biology interactions. What I mean is that for lots of the selections we're interested in, we're trying to evolve relatively complicated traits. And we try and harness those traits to things that will increase the rate at which cells that have desired properties work. So we basically make proxies, if you like, for the traits we want. We try and link something like a circadian clock to better growth. And we make estimates of the, how carefully we are forcing cells to do, quote, unquote, the things we would like. Cells have an irritating habit of being smarter than us and doing something different. Sometimes the different thing, and I'll explain again one example of that today, is actually at least as interesting as what we hope. But more often, they just figure out some way of answering the selection, which is biologically uninteresting to us, and we go drinking and cry. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about issues with trying to understand evolution first in the field and then in the laboratory. And I think there are serious complications for both. None of which means that people should not be trying. In particular, it means that people who do the different things should try and talk carefully and respectfully to each other to figure out how they can help each other. Okay. So the biggest issue with inferring evolutionary history from looking at organisms that are either alive today, are fossilized in the ground, or have their DNA sequences imputed to them by doing phylogenetic reconstruction exercises from current day sequences is the evidence is seriously limited. Right? We do not have access to living creatures that existed in the past, or their DNA sequences, or their physiology. All those things get inferred. Okay? And in particular, an exercise, the sort of world of Evo Diva that, that people like Cassandra move in. One often is asking the question, here are two species which I believe diverged relatively recently in evolutionary time. I would like to know what the mutations are that change the common ancestor into these two forms which I know and care about. So a classical example would be Darwin's finches on the Galapagos or the different versions of giant tortoises that have different shell patterns on the different Galapagos islands. So part of the problem is the classical definition of species as first put forth by Darwin himself, is that a pair of organisms is defined as coming from two different species if you cannot successfully breed them and make fertile progeny. So cannot successful breed them, successfully breed them and make fertile progeny is a serious problem for a geneticist trying to track down the mutations that separate these two species. There are, fortunately, a small number of exceptions. So there are certain places in evolutionary history where organisms have separated sufficiently that in the field, 
you have two populations where genes do not flow at an appreciable rate from one to another. So this satisfies the Darwin and Ernst Mayer <coughs> definition of, of being well-formed biological species because they are separate genetically in the wild. But in the laboratory, if the right music is played and they are placed in sufficiently confined environments, A, they can breed with each other, and B, in certain cases, they can produce fertile pro progeny. So there are examples from fruit flies, which you could ask Cassandra about if she's a fly expert. There are examples from sticklebacks. There's very beautiful work done by David Kingsley and his collaborators at Stanford, and there are cichlid fish that live in the Great East African lakes where they're very many species formed in evolutionary times very, very recently. So in principle, with painstaking analysis, which means you cross species together and you look at their progeny and you follow phenotypically and genetically traits that segregate in those crosses, you can track down the mutations that in the here and now account for differences in phenotype, morphology, behavior, whatever aspect of phenotype it is you wish to study, that determine one species look this way and one species looks the other. But one of the things that I think that analysis has failed to sufficiently acknowledge is that just because those are the mutations that separate these species today, we cannot be certain that those are the mutations that drove their initial separation. And I'm going to appeal to, you don't have to worry about all the details here. This is a, a reaction coordinate, the sort of thing that a lot of physical chemists and entomologists. So here, with energy being up here, and some mythical reaction coordinate being along here, here is a hydroxide ion and methyl chloride. This is their energy. These are the starting products. To go through a chemical reaction, you have to make a transition state. You don't have to worry about its chemical nature. There won't be a quiz. But you need to go up in energy to get that. So there's an activation energy. This means that this state is essentially evanescent. It's extremely difficult experimentally to detect its existence. right? And then you come down here, and you have products that have a lower energy. And so one of the things I think we need to think more seriously about is how often is it likely to be true that when we look at two pairs of species where we can catalog the genetic differences that account for their phenotypes, there are other genetic differences that existed in the past that may have initiated their phenotypic separation from each other, but have then been lost, for example, because there are mutations which produce large benefits and large costs. The benefits outweigh the costs. That helped drive speciation. And the costs could eventually be ameliorated, for example, by reverting that original mutation, which is now no longer accessible to us because we don't have access to those ancestors at the time when the organisms diverged from each other. And one of the things that I think is interesting about experimental evolution is it would be worth looking carefully in experimental evolution to see if we can ever see things like this happen. And the last thing is, in general, each quote-unquote experiment, this is not experiment, this is the real world, but you can think of it, if you like, as the globe playing the experimentalist, is typically done once. Right? The Galapagos have not been formed multiple independent times, neither has Hawaii and so on and so forth. So, unfortunately, there are also issues with laboratory experiments. If there weren't, we could just 
extinguished field biologists. So the first is the time of population size is limited. Students have to get their PhDs, postdocs have to get jobs, and in general, experiments have to be done on approximately those timescales. There are, as far as I know, there's basically a single exception, which is Richard Lenski's experiment, where now they are 50,000 generations and 20 years in, but it has passed through the hands of many graduate students and postdocs, each of whom has extracted the materials they need to propel their academic careers. But that's, a, as, as far as I know, that's a singular exception to the rule that most experimental evolution experiments last less than the duration of the typical PhD or postdoc. And population sizes are limited. I can't persuade the entire city of Boston to be paved with agar. Okay. The second thing is that the environments are much too simple. So typically, most experimental evolution is done starting with a single clonal population, or at best, an outbred population all of the same species. And the environments are relatively invariant. So even if you do the Lenski experiment, where every day culture of bacteria is diluted 100-fold into fresh medium, and the environment changes because the bacteria gradually use up the glucose and eventually stop growing. So there is a cyclical change in the environment. It's an extremely regular cyclical change, and people who do evolution in chemostats are, in a sense, designing the environment to be as constant as possible. This is not what we live in. So those of you who come from the East Coast may have noticed the change, as I did, in the climate and the level of sunlight as you move from East to West, right? So there's little or no spatial, temporal, or organismal variation. Most organisms live in environments where there are many other organisms with whom they have complicated interactions that affect the rate at which they reproduce and which mutations will increase or decrease that rate of reproduction. Okay? It's also typically true that, that in laboratory experiments, and, and the experiments I'm going to show you today exemplify this trait in spades, that selection is usually very, very strong. You start out with things that don't grow at all well under set of some set of conditions and hope that you can rapidly isolate mutations that will make them grow much faster. And you typically are really implying a single stress on them. So in the Lenski experiment, that stress is they don't get enough glucose. And the result of all this is that they're, they're, whatever conclusions from individual experiments of the aggregates of laboratory evolution we can draw have unknown relevance to long-term natural evolution. Right? So, um, our perspective on doing this is we do experimental evolution in the laboratory primarily because it's fun and it amuses us. Um, but we also hope that what we would do would help people understand evolution in the big bad world. And my position on this is I'm an optimist, and so I believe that there are some commonalities between the things that drive evolution in the laboratory and the larger and more complicated world. And that by doing experiments in the laboratory and talking to people who do observations in the field, we will help to produce more tightly defined and therefore better falsifiable hypotheses that can be exported into the natural world where observations and experiments are extremely difficult. If that turns out not to be true, I suspect evolution will be very difficult 
to understand in the natural world, and if some of the hypotheses that we make can be falsified in the natural world, that itself is a form of progress. Okay. Are we limiting ourselves, Andrew, by focusing on only those organisms that are easily cultured in the laboratory? I always sometimes worry that the things we happen to look at are uh, anomalous in that sense. I think that's a very good point. And so the, the, the history of biology is it's sort of gone through, if you like, in terms of the number of organisms have studied this very severe population bottleneck. So that if you look back 30 or 40 years, a much larger diversity of organisms was worked. And there was still a concentration of people who worked on E. coli and, and human and rodent tissue culture cells. But there were the distribution of, of numbers of people across organisms was much flatter. As um, it became possible to do two things. First of all, to manipulate the genomes of organisms by genetic engineering. And secondly, to sequence organisms. There was initially a period where there's a tremendous concentration, because there's a very small number of organisms where those tools were available, because genetic engineering actually depends on having quite a lot of classical genetics done first. And, and so that drove things towards a small collection of things which roughly are human beings who are not particularly amenable to anything but are medically important and very intensively phenotyped, much more than any other organism, because people go to their doctors with people who do phenotype. E. coli, budding yeast, Drosophila melanogaster, Cenorhabditis elegans, the worm, and mice. Okay, and, and you could throw in a seventh and add Arabidopsis thaliana, which is the, the mustard crust. And so there's this tremendous sort of funneling in, and for example, a number of people who work on protozoa, where all sorts of important things of general interest in biology were discovered, has declined dramatically. There is some hope that with the advent of new methods of manipulating gene expression like RNA interference, which don't depend so much on being able to get pieces of DNA back into the right place in the genome, and much cheaper sequencing, that quote unquote non-model organisms will come to the fore. And it's therefore an interesting question of are there evolutionary experiments that would be much better to, to do with those things? And, and so for example, work that I'm not going to talk about today, a postdoctoral fellow in the lab named Eric Hong, <coughs> has been investigating the engineering and evolution of symbiosis. And he chose to do this with budding yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Chlamydomonas ranthartii, which is sometimes called the green yeast, the unicellular allergen, just because they're so well characterized and they're variety. And there is a sort of over the horizon claim about this, that this in some way might help us understand how lichens, which are symbioses of algae and fungi, Evolved, and a variety of people said, Well, you people are crazy because the fungi and algae are filamentous fungi, so why are you doing with the Sudacidilis or Neurospora? And our answer is like, We just don't know to use. Um, and so I think it's a very good point. But I guess what I would say is until people have the courage to go off and do it in non model organisms and show they can find interestingly different things, it's just a question hanging in the air. Yes? Do you think Two issues. Uh, so one is, uh, like you basically said, that uh, there is a funneling and bottleneck 
just because of the investment of you know, prior work in development and just making the system work. Uh, David, I think, was asking more whether you know, these organisms are really, but okay, that basically means that uh, if we invest in any other, I mean, invest time in any other beast, uh, will eventually succeed. But then uh, one can imagine that uh, uh, we actually, it's not just work, but it's special properties of this organism so that they don't uh, need you know, change of seasons to do what, uh, what they do, and uh, therefore somehow uh, are less dependent, uh, let's say, on environmental change, and uh, would really have somehow different, different dynamics. Yeah, I, sorry, I was trying, I guess what I was trying to say is I wasn't defending the funneling, I was describing it as a historical exercise. And I think it is an unanswered question as to whether putting effort in to do it in other organisms would be worthwhile because they have interestingly different ways of doing things. And at least the history of biology strongly suggests that's true. So that people have learned things by studying things that were very specialized for doing things. So understanding how mammalian cells grow and divide, or indeed even that yeast cells with all their genetic tractability is somewhat complicated, because they actually have to grow and divide. They're like your minivan, and they have to drop down DVD screens to keep the children from killing each other in the back on long rides, and they don't go very fast, and so on and so forth. If you look at a large egg born of an organism which does cell divisions extremely rapidly, because the goal is to get to be something you can swim away as fast as possible, which, for example, a frog egg is, this is like looking at a dragster if you're trying to understand how a car works. And it turns out that the drop-down video screens have nothing to do with the fundamental properties of an internal combustion engine. But all that the NHRA, the National Hot Rod Association, is interested in is how fast can you generate power, transmit it to the back wheels, and keep the thing at least approximately straight and use parachutes to slow down. So yeah, I think there is a, a strong argument that history suggests that it would be worth doing things in other things. All I was trying to say in answer to David's question is we don't know for evolutionary studies whether that's true or not. And until people are brave enough, we won't. Right? So, so at that point, it's the question is interesting and important, but the answer at this point is borrowing conversation rather than science, which is okay. So the analysis, if you do experimental evolution, is much easier than it is if you take two well-formed species where you're lucky enough to interbreed, just because there, there are all sorts of complications that don't exist. Okay. It is possible to reconstruct what happened. It is easy to try and engineer the evolved strain into its ancestral straight state and vice versa. And again, I will show you an example of that. And last but not least, it's possible to do multiple parallel experiments. So in the famous phrase of Stephen Jay Gould, where he argued it was impossible to replay the tape of evolution in this experiment, you can just set up as many eight tracks as you wish in parallel and ask how similarly does evolution under the same set of challenges proceed? Do you get the same general strategic responses to a problem? If they're the same general strategic responses, does it involve the same physiology? If it's the same physiology, does it involve mutations in the same genes? If it's mutations in the same genes, do they occur in similar orders in parallel experiments? And we and many other people <coughs> this question. Okay, so I'm going to take a little um, sidestep here and talk about one area where I think collaboration between 
field work and experimental work might be particularly productive. And so it's not the sort of thing that typically interests physicists who get interested in evolution because they want to look at things that they can apply physics theory to, where rates of change are small, mutations have small effects, so you can make all sorts of useful, useful mathematical approximations, and in some sense they are collectively the descendants of R.A. Fisher and J.D.S. Haldane and all those guys. And if you like, they are the advisors to the milk minister of the People's Republic of Wisconsin, and, and if the milk minister could get all the data about genetic variation in cattle, the people who do population genetics would tell them exactly how to design the breeding program to make milk so cheap that butter could be made so cheap that margarine would be driven from the face of the earth, which is the ultimate aim of the state of Wisconsin. Okay? okay. And so, so now I'm going to talk about quantitative issues in evolution, and they are, I'm, I'm not denigrating them, I'm just distinguishing them from qualitative issues where things change in a really dramatic way and things become novel. Now, we could have a long discussion, and it might be worth doing, about what constitutes novelty. For now, I will use a ruse and say that in just the same way when the book Ulysses was imported into the United States and declared pornographic, the judge who issued this decision said, I cannot define pornography, but I know it when I see it, and I will make the same argument for novelty. And try it by giving you an example. This is a plant called the Californian tarweed. You could probably go into the hills around here and with an expert botanist like Boris's guide, you could, you could find this plant. People like Boris and I would not be able to tell one sort of tarweed from another, and there are many of them in the continental Americas, both north and south, and they all look about like this to a non-botanist. Seeds from these plants are one of the very few things that made it early to the Hawaiian archipelago in its existence. The Hawaiian archipelago is formed as a tectonic plate moves over a hot spot in the mantle, and about every million years, lava bubbles through and you make an island. So the newest one is one million years old and the oldest one is eight million years old. It's a long way from anything else, and so very few things make it there. Seeds one of these guys did. All the relatives in the continental Americas look much like this. These guys on Hawaii do not, either in morphology or size or more or less anything else you want to imagine. And it wasn't until molecular evidence through DNA became possible that people even realized that these guys were all descendants through presumably some relatively small number of mutations of these guys. And so I'm going to just give you a model for novelty. and. and and one of the reasons for doing that, one of the things that people get quite hot and bothered about about experimental evolution is that many of the mutations that are isolated in these studies, and, and our studies are no exception, are loss of function mutations rather than gain of function mutations. Yes? Um, now your question, how different is that story from uh, a Darwin Finch story? Sorry, just so that I, uh, sorry, I, I know it might sound very nice, but, but what is the difference? Is it, is it a niche? Um, is that the story? I, I guess the, the Darwin Finch story. Sorry. We would need an ornithologist here to tell us how different the finches are on the Galapagos. A, from each other, okay. and, and B, from the finches in the continental Americas. And I'm not enough of a naturalist to be able to answer that question, therefore I can't really answer your question. Okay? My apologies, but maybe Cassandra can. Well, but what might be 
close to it is that we do know, for example, that there are other species of birds living on the Galapagos in the same different ecological niches that these finches have, that occupy. The finches have these qualitatively different, and you can quantify them, bee shapes that people correspond with the foods, whatever. But the songbirds, same species that live in these same habitats, do not have differentiated beaks that we think are also eating different foods, but we are not detecting changes in that particular. So if Darwin had collected or focused on his collection of songbirds, then we wouldn't be talking about these things. But, but he collected a lot of finches. He didn't even know what he collected, actually. Somebody else had to tell him what he did. But uh, yeah, so that might be close to answering your question. I think one uh, rather substantial difference is that uh, the common ancestor of the Hawaiian soldier stars, I believe, underwent a full genome duplication event. Darwin's nations didn't do that. Right. And, and so one of the things that, that people worry about, as I said, is, is that in laboratory evolution experiments, many of the mutations are loss of function mutations. Okay? So geneticists can explain this by saying it is much easier to kill a protein than to make it do more of what it already does or do something qualitatively different. And therefore, the target size for loss of function mutations is typically much larger than the target size for gain of function mutations. If any of these terms are unclear, just stop me and get me to define. Okay? As a result, if you can get the same phenotype under this strong unidirectional selection by loss of function mutations and gain of function mutations, statistically you will almost always see the loss of function mutations. This has led to the argument by proponents of intelligent design that if evolution worked the way it did in the laboratory over a long period of time, all the genes would have been inactivated and therefore you guys must be smoking crack. <laughs> so so I, I just want to construct a purely hypothetical argument, not supported by any evidence whatsoever, that suggests why loss of function mutations, mutations like that, might be a useful thing for the generation of evolutionary novelty, and that therefore things that happen in laboratory experiments might not be so irrelevant to what happens in the natural world, but they might be a bit like transition states in chemistry and rather hard to see in the natural world, and studying them in the laboratory might help us go look for them in the natural world. So here is our argument. This is a classical Sewell-Wright-style fitness diagram. The genotype is depicted in two axes. This is clearly absolutely nuts, right? Because you can imagine this is a two-base genome. Axis one is A, G, C, and T, and axis two is A, G, C, and T in a real genome. The space is ridiculously multidimensional, but this will have to suffice. Okay? Fitness is the vertical axis. It's higher up, the more fit you are. So in your comfortable home environment, you sit the population typically <laughs> distributed about something like this red band. This is the result of the balance between mutation and selection. Selection on mutations drives you up. Deleterious mutations occur much faster. They tend to pull you down. There's some sort of new position. And there is an argument based on Fisher here that the only things that can drive you up are small effect mutations because if they go right over here, they fall off the fitness feed. Okay? I'm unconvinced by this argument, but I'm using it as a crutch here. Okay? So small mutations can take you off the hill. Maybe there's another place where things have non-zero fitness, which is way over there. 
And a large mutation could take you there by the Fisher argument, it's more likely to end up close to the base of the hill than the top. And in your home environment, this is a bad mutation because fitness has gone down. Okay. But that mutation might have the property that it would allow you to migrate from your current home, so it should say niche one under here, to a different place, niche two, where in fact that genotype is more fit in niche two than the original genotype was in niche one. Okay. If you live in a crowded ecosystem, like the Amazonian rainforest. There is a strong probability someone else is already at home in niche two. So if it's occupied, your mutant is likely to be outcompeted because it's way down here, and whoever lives there is maybe up here or even through the ceiling. Okay? And so this large effect mutation will be what Darwin called a hopeful monster. So Darwin was very strongly against the idea that large effect mutations had anything whatsoever to do with evolution, even though they could clearly be demonstrated by breeders of plants and animals. Okay? And he argued that because he said they would be hopeful monsters, meaning that they would be so changed that they would wish to succeed but fail to do so. And so I've written hopeless here because that's actually what they are by his definition. But now imagine we're in Hawaii, and no one's at home in niche two, because Hawaii's just been formed, and plants and animals and microbes have just started to prosper there. So we have a virgin ecosystem. Niche two is empty. All we require now is that the absolute fitness of the mutant, the number of progeny it leaves who on average survive to reproduce, is greater than one. So I'm thinking about an asexual organism here. It's two if it's a sexual Okay? And now the mutant really is a hopeful monster, right? And in particular, it's way down here. So there's strong selection and so a bunch of mutations. So, so in particular, I'm appealing to the idea that it's way down here because this mutation has profoundly reorganized the organism in some way. So it looks, acts, behaves in some novel way. The mutation has given the organism serious benefits in that reorganization, but it also imposes cost to people because the organism has not evolved to live that way. So the argument is that you can ameliorate those costs by what a geneticist would call a suppressor mutation and climb up this peak. And it might also be true because the whole thing has now been reorganized in some sense. There are many more mutations that are available that will alter its phenotype in profound ways than there were over here if you have to stay close to the top of this. <coughs> okay. So if there is any truth to this fantasy, right, and I, I need to emphasize again, there's absolutely no experimental evidence, or as far as I know, evidence from the field in favor of it. Then looking at how novelty arises in the lab might be relevant to how novelty arises in the field. So you can create your own virgin ecosystem. Yeah. That we never had competitors who were already living in niche two. Okay? So, yeah. so I guess you use novelty in the context. But so, what does novelty mean? Anything new? Something big new? I mean, so. This, this is the problem. It's exactly the problem which I was trying to sidestep around and you're usefully putting the piano wire out across the hallway. <laughs> um, I think it's very hard to define. I would claim 
that it is some change in behavior, structure, strategy that enables organisms to thrive in situations where they were not able to do so before and strongly changes the likely path of further evolution. Now, the complication with that definition, is, as someone who's a quantitative geneticist pointed out who wanted a really rigorous definition, is you could claim by a single step mutation that gave you antibiotic resistance in a microbe would, in some sense, satisfy that definition of novel because it would allow it to live on a plate with antibiotics. Now, I think in that case, it doesn't so much change the course of what most future mutations will do, or, or many future mutations will do to the organism. So maybe for now, we can leave it as a combination of both changing the behavior and the phenotype in some significant way and also changing likely future trajectories. But we could have a much longer discussion about it. Yeah, it's not, I mean, so I had an interesting conversation with Boris about you know, one good way of thinking about things, like do you understand what you mean, is whether you can tell a computer what to do with it. Right? So in terms of like fitness in a novel environment, I can write simulations that, that change the fitness effects of mutants in different environments. Can I get a, a definition of novelty so that the computer, at the end of the algorithm, can say novelty is now 0.79. I don't think so. But, but you're saying extinction is the answer, right? So I guess you, I thought you said that you can actually tell the computer that it's novel if it doesn't go extinct in the yeah, new but, but then you have to figure out, but, 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 but that doesn't rule out antibiotic resistance mutants. So then it's something about the future trajectories and stuff. So maybe, maybe one could, but, but not instantly. Yes. Can, can you go back um, one slide? Sure. So um, I'm wondering, uh, it, it seems to me like uh, you're ignoring two elephants in the room. Okay. Uh, one is the fact that uh, genotype to phenotype transformation is not necessarily unique. And you could, uh, you could easily um, have uh, cases in which a given genotype under different environments would give you different fitness uh, functions. Uh, so guilty as charged. This is, this is guilty as charged. Just, just a second. The other, the other, uh, the other elephant is that you, in order to get a large change in in phenotype, you do not necessarily need to have a large mutation. Because this is because of the nonlinearity that is very deeply inherited in biological systems. Sometimes a really tiny, tiny change uh, in, in genotype will give you a huge. Change okay. in, uh, in, uh, guilty as guilty as charged too, but but in this case this is this is just 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 like Spain. <laughs> so um, uh, so it could be that your uh, transition state, or or you cannot ignore a case in which the transition state is epigenetic and not genetic. All right, ready for an answer? Yes. Okay. So for the so I, I plead guilty twice. Okay. The, 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 the second charge is the result of me writing things down poorly. This is meant to say large effect mutation. It does not say anything. And it's just because I didn't want to put too many words on the slide, and now I realize I should. Because I don't mean large change in the structure of the genome. I just mean that the effect of the mutation on the phenotype is large. And I agree it could be an extremely subtle biochemical mutation. It doesn't have to be anything more than a single nucleotide. Okay, so that's the first thing. So the second point you raised is 
what is the interaction between genetic, environmental, and phenotypic diversity? And how important is it that a single genome can have multiple phenotypes in different, in principle, one per environment, and can even have multiple phenotypes in the same environment, one people like saying LIGO with one non-genetic individuality. Um, and I guess what my answer to that, as will become clear in a second, I am, you know, amongst the strongest of card-carrying reductionists. I just want to study problems in the simplest possible way I can. And what I'm going to admit to all those possibilities, I'm not going to think about them very seriously. Okay? And that is either a fatal flaw or a great simplification. And again, we could have drink a lot of beer and talk about it. But, but all the possibilities you raise are things that should be considered for a full understanding of what goes on. I don't think at this point we know to what extent we can answer the question of how much of evolution has been driven by exploiting pre-existing phenotypic diversity, well, what the class of evolutionary biologists call plasticity, and then fixing, just moving the range of plasticity by mutations that now limit or change the degree of variation you can get, as opposed to mutations that make organisms do something, either quantitatively or qualitatively, that they never do before. We just, I just don't think we have enough evidence to answer that question. And so it is legitimate, if you want to simplify, to just ignore that question. Not for the real world, but for things in the mark. OK? All right, so why should we study yeast? We should study yeast because it grows rapidly. It proliferates sexually or asexually, which is back to this hundredth point. It has excellent genetics. It has arguably the best genetics of anything, including E. coli. There are really good genome-based tools to find mutations, which involve, involve sex, which E. coli does not have. And at least to a reductionist, it's multicellular. Okay? So first of all, I will explain what I mean by reductionism. I do not mean that everything is, is described as a linear sum of chemical reactions, which is the straw man version of reductionism used by people who advocate holism, which in my opinion is more useful in aromatherapy than in science. Okay? You've got to define your, you have to find something interesting you wish to study. You have to define your terms. You have to state the question in the most general possible form. You have to find the simplest possible example of the problem. You have to intently go through a loop of observing, experimenting, inducing hypotheses, and testing predictions. You probably need to do this with a community of people, and you need to fight with them, but also exchange information with them so that ideas are tested in the crucible of sort of, you know, not as bad as the Moscow School of Theoretical Physics, but people being honest with each other when they don't believe each other. Okay? And you should extrapolate understanding from the specific example of the general problem. Monod famously said, what is true for E. coli is true for the elephant. It's debatable how deeply that applies to transcriptional control, but it's at least the idea. And it's probably a good idea to collaborate with theorists and simulators to speed your route to understanding, which is actually why I come here. All right. So the last general thing I'm going to say is that yeast is an organism that does developmental biology. Okay? So this is the yeast life cycle. Here's a haploid cell. There are two mating types called A and L. Here's a single cell. It makes a little bud. The bud grows bigger, and the daughter cell separates off. For a variety of reasons, you can think of this daughter cell as being the stem cell. It keeps making bigger mothers. Okay? There's another mating type called alpha. 
under appropriate circumstances, these cells secrete pheromones. They're like teenagers. When they sense each other's pheromones, they grow towards each other. They fuse to make a diploid cell. The diploid cell can go around the same cycle okay, of growth and division. They're a little bigger than the haploid cells, but not otherwise distinguishable from the outside. If it is starved in the appropriate so then the, the offspring is then haploid or diploid? No, these are, these are, all the offspring here are diploid. So there's a diploid cells giving diploid cells, this is haploid cells giving haploid cells, two haploids come together to make a diploid, all of whose progeny are diploid. Until you starve them in the appropriate way, they go through meiosis, they make four spores, the spores can be germinated, and you're back to the top. Okay? So I believe using the rigorous definitions from developmental biology, the differentiation is a change in the phenotype of cells in response to external signals. Mating is an act of differentiation because these cells do all sorts of different things, including fuse with each other. Ditto sporulation. In development, determination means that a certain cell is programmed to behave in a certain way when it sees a stimulus. And that programming is heritable. So these two haploid cells, these guys are determined to respond to alpha factor, and these guys are determined to respond to A factor. Okay, so they're determined to behave in this particular way, just as the diploid cells are determined to respond to starvation by making spores. Okay? that they're latent, if you like, programs of gene expression which can be drawn into action by environmental cues. Under heritable, that distinction is heritable. And there's cell-cell interaction here. So what's not to love about developmental biology, right? So the other thing is that they are also, I mean, this is cell-cell interaction is involved in multicellularity, but I don't think you can claim anything here as multicellular, at least as long as it's being shaken hard to us. And do I remember correctly, you can flip from alpha to A as well, so there's other... Yes, and singles, yeast, as you isolate them from the wild as haploids, um, are, are capable of transgendering at extremely rapid rates. Okay, the, the cells can switch mating type as often as once per cell division. Okay, so one of the things I need to point out is that the same sort of transition that has gone on here, so this is the domestication of the dog, Okay, has gone on with yeast. Okay, this is a this is a picture telling a lie. You should not walk away believing that this mold is yeast. The yeast are not on the outside of the grapes; they are on the inside of the grapes. But I can't find a picture of yeast on the inside of the grapes. So this is some other fungus. But at least yeast lives in a complicated natural environment. Okay, and it has been domesticated. So these beautiful single colonies pinned by someone's robot all descend from genetically identical cells, and those cells float around as single cells in a flask. Okay? But that's not the way many yeast strains work from the wild. So what you see in this picture are two strains of yeast thrown in the same flask together. One expresses the fluorescent protein, so at least in this image it gets colored green, and the other expresses the fluorescent protein that gets it colored red. This little one, which says AMN1W303, is W303, a laboratory yeast strain, one week, it turns out, used. And you will see that these are mainly single cells. So this is a cell in its bud, a cell in its bud, a cell in its bud. These are the cells that have yet to bud. It differs from this strain 
by two single nucleotide mutations that change the allele of this gene into a different form. And this is the allele that was isolated from a strain of yeast isolated by Bob Mortimer from the wild, at least when the wild is, is considered to be a fermentation in a commercial water, which is where it comes from. Okay? And so what you will notice is they're not beautiful quantized aggregates, but these cells stick together. Okay. And so this was removed during domestication because yeast geneticists want each colony to come from a single cell. When you plate these little pieces of aggregation, the colonies come from multiple cells. Yes? Uh, at uh, what speed are they shaken? Uh, I don't know, 100 RPM. Well, I, I mean, my, my question is, if we do increase the, the speed uh, towards infinity, we should expect them to be a single cell? Uh, I'm going to talk in a second about the two different modes of use multicellularity. Maybe we can come back to the question, okay? Because I'll talk about how cells become multicellularity and we can speculate on what the answer to your question would be, which is a good question. Yes? So are they not separating or are they aggregating? Next slide. Okay, that's exactly the right question. Okay, so these are the modes of multicellularity in yeast. This is how it's been domesticated, so they don't stick together. So exactly as you point out, there are two modes of being multicellular. One is, so the thing that you have to remember, these cells have a cell wall that's about 100 nanometers thick. When they divide, they do cytokinesis, so their cytoplasms are separate, but biochemically there are two different cells there. But at the end of that process, the cell walls are conjoined. Okay? In the laboratory, the cells secrete enzymes, and the, and the wall that separates from mother from daughter has a different chemical composition at some level from the rest of the wall. And so the cells secrete enzymes that preferentially dissolve that part of the cell wall, and now the cells fall apart. Okay? The strain that I just showed you, the effect of that mutation restoring it to its ancestral strain, if you like, is to decrease the amount of those enzymes that are secreted, and therefore these cells end up stuck to each other by their cell walls. Okay, so they are inseparable. Okay? And the alternative, which for example, quite a lot of brewing strains exhibit, is what is called flocculation. So now Let's imagine that we've made two differently colored derivatives of the same clone, and we stick them in a flask, and we shake it, and they stick together to make aggregates like this. And so in terms of Nicolas' question, these guys, the suspicion is you can turn the speed up a lot. Eventually, presumably, you can make shear force strong enough that you will start rupturing the cell walls, but you will probably kill yourselves as you you may kill ourselves because we do that. This is involved in the interaction of adhesive molecules with each other, and to some extent, at least for, for modest degrees of aggregation, for example, by sonication, you can break these things up to single cells, and presumably you could get them going fast enough to do the same thing. Okay. All right, so why should we be multicellular? Or, sorry, why should we be multicellular if we're an evolving organism in the primordial soup? Okay. As long as the primordial soup includes fish, maybe we don't wish to be eaten because we are at the moment small enough to fit inside the jaws of the fish. If we aggregate, we survive, and if you're all fish eats, the poor fish dies. Okay? And there is, there is a, a single example of an experimental evolution paper done in the 1960s um, where people showed that using 
protozoa is the parasite you could select for this form of simple undifferentiated multicellularity like this. Okay, so that's one possibility. So there's this recent, uh, I think it's a PLAS paper by Carrizano. Uh, is, is that the same? Well, there the selection is for them to fall to the bottom of the two fast, right? Which is a selection for them to get bigger. Okay, but it's not, it, they didn't use predation in right. the experiment. But you could argue, I mean, you could argue that's a side effect. I mean, it's not, I would claim that it's not clear that that's, that selection is a selection dreamed up by scientists because it will produce a trait. It's not clear that falling fast is something that nature is necessarily selective on terribly hard, but maybe it's a proxy for this. Yes? Oh, sorry. Uh, but I, I won't eat uh, the, the single yeast, okay? Because it will uh, almost be a liquid, but uh, if I see a. Okay, I mean this fish to be very, very small. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a it's just that like, my drawing skills are sufficiently pathetic. But yes, and, and you, you, could, you could benefit from I'm just, I'm just producing, I'm, I'm, I'm running through the list of ideas that have been advanced. Okay, I'm not seriously. I'll defend one of them because we've done experiments. Okay. So a, a, a second argument is that being multicellular is a, is a better way of using certain sorts of polyphos. So this is, this is a complex nutrient made of little black holes. It is too big to import. So the cell has to hydrolyze it into black holes, single black holes, using an enzyme that therefore has to be outside the cell, for example, located in the cell wall, which actually turns out to be really quite porous. Okay? So you make black holes. You have a black hole importer. But if you start to think about, in some detail, about the physics of this problem, unless these two things are coupled to each other in such a way that the black hole gets fed without ever being exposed to aqueous solution directly to the importer, most of the black holes float off into space. And so the cell doesn't harvest most of the nutrients that it liberates. So here is a single cell, and this faint pink wash is the concentration of that nutrient falling off as 1 over R as you go away from the cell. If you don't believe it's 1 over R, complain to Howard Bird, not to me. <laughs> right, because it comes from this point. Okay? Here are seven cells put together, right? They each hydrolyze the substrate. They each collect, let's say, 1% of the hydrolysis product that they themselves make, but they also collect 1% of their neighbors and so on and so forth. So maybe this puts you over the limit in terms of nutrient import that allows you to grow and is therefore a benefit to sticking together. Now, if you're using that sort of strategy, there's a question of whether you are the good guys or the bad guys. So the good guys here are yellow. These are guys who make the enzyme that liberates the public good and can import it. The bad guys don't make the en enzyme, but can import it. Okay? So if you make aggregates because cells bump into each other, what these person call population, the bad guys can glom on the good guys, and in this aggregate, the bad guys do better than the good guys, because they don't bear the cost of making the enzyme that produces the public good. Here is the case where colonies form by failure of cells to separate. They therefore are all genetically related. 
a single bad guy arises, but it has to be true eventually after enough cell divisions that the bad guys end up in their own clump and the good guys end up in theirs. Right? And now the good guys, because they're close to each other, have preferential access to the public as relative to these guys down here. And, and you can demonstrate in reconstruction experiments in the laboratory that in this situation, the bad guys lose to the good guys. All right. Sorry, when you say the bad guys lose to the good, good guys, you mean there's an evolutionarily stable balance eventually? Because if it's all bad guys, then they're out of luck, right? Right. So in this situation, um, I'll show you at the end that the, 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 a particular form of bad guys loses out to the good guys. That is, you can measure a selected coefficient by which these guys are declining in abundance. Okay, so now we're going to actually talk about experiments. This is John Koshwanes, who did all the experiments that I will talk about. John's going to be here later, and so I'm going to describe this in the briefest of outlines, because hopefully you can get him to talk about it, or at least talk to him when he comes. And this work was done in collaboration with Kevin Foster. Kevin is a properly trained, honest to God evolutionary biologist, and he applied sticks and whips to keep us thinking on approximately the straight and narrow. All deviations from which can be blamed on me, not. Okay? So if you are a yeast cell, you can grow on different things. In a laboratory, you are fed glucose because they grow fastest on glucose. There are many different glucose importers embedded in the plasma membrane that yeast loves glucose so much. When you're a graduate student, you drink beer. Beer is made from maltose, which is two glucoses stuck together. The disaccharide is imported into the cell through a specific transporter. It is hydrolyzed by enzymes inside the cell. And you release glucose, so there's none of these nasty public goods problems because the cells sequester their own maltose, hydrolyze it, and do not let the products go. As your tastes mature and your waistline expands and your salary increases a faculty member, you switch to wine. Okay? Wine is made primarily from sucrose. So sucrose, which can actually, by genetic engineering, be imported in your regular run-of-the-mill yeast strain is not. It is hydrolyzed by an enzyme, invertase, which has a rich and storied history in science, which is located in the cell wall primarily. A little bit leaks into solution. It releases glucose and fructose, they are imported by these monosaccharide importers. Okay, and that's how the cells grow and ferment as ethanol. And so the question that John was interested in, John comes from an engineering background, is given this assertion that most of the glucose and fructose will escape into an infinite sink if the cells are low dilution. What do cells have to do to make sure that enough of the hexose and glucose comes into the cell? So this is invertase again. The name of the gene that encodes it is SUP2 for sucrose. And so John did simulations about the rate at which cells would be able to hydrolyze and then take up the monosaccharides, produce monosaccharides by hydrolysis and then take them up. And this is a prediction from free parameter free simulations. Okay? That means that all the parameters that go into this exploit 
into these simulations are measurements from the literature, and in a couple of cases where John wasn't happy with the literature measurements, measurements he made. So there are no free parameters. Okay? And this is work is published. I'm not going to say anything in detail about the simulations, but they produce a prediction. The prediction is that single cells cannot form colonies at low sucrose concentration, and clumps of cells can. Okay? On the argument that I made that they each get some of each other's liberated monosaccharides. Okay? But at this point, it's also true that engineers predict with some confidence that bees couldn't fly because they were too heavy. Okay, so experiments are in order. So again, because it's published, I'm only showing you the barest outline of the experiments. So what John does is through genetic trickery, he either produces single cells or clumps of cells. Okay? And he drops them using a fluorescence-activated cell sorter into these little microtiter wells. So each one of these is about 7 millimeters across. It contains about 150 microliters of liquid. That liquid has in it 8 millimolar sucrose, which is a relatively low sucrose concentration. Each of these wells going down here got 30 single cells. Each of these got 30 cells that don't make invertase. So this is a control. This is a clump of between 15 and 30 cells, because that's an accuracy you can measure with. Of cells that can make invertase, this is a similar size clump of cells that can't make invertase. The plates are grown without shaking them. Okay? And what you can see is that the clumps grow and no one else does. Pick the clumps that can make invertase. And there's a control experiment where we use monosaccharide and things from all these wells. Okay? So this says, at least under these conditions, clumps can proliferate, cells can allow cells to proliferate at low sucrose concentration. And the clumps are effectively close to infinite pollution under circumstances where the same number of single cells randomly distributed across the bottom of this well cannot be. Okay? And so, as well as in, yes. So do, do they grow faster, or uh, the other don't grow at all? But eventually, if you wait long enough, the guys who don't make invertase under these circumstances don't grow. Okay, these guys eventually grow, right? Because eventually the monosaccharide concentration will start going, up and they will start to proliferate very slowly. But there's a very large genetic advantage. But yes, you're right. Eventually, they grow. okay. So there are three different ways that John showed by engineering that you could get them. Once they do grow, do they uh, catch up in, in the, the rate of growth? Well, eventually, well, they're always going to catch up because they're always going to exhaust the, the sugar that's in the medium, right? They reach a, the culture saturates. Eventually, cell division stops because there's no more carbon. Yeah, but if you were to confuse the worlds. Well, I think if you were to perfuse the wells, you could continually to replace the meat. To continually I think if you stuck the cells down in a microfluidic device, okay, and float medium past and continuously, and it's related to the answer to Nikolai's question, the single cells will never grow. Because you'll keep washing away the sucrose they're producing, the glucose and fructose that they're producing. The reason they grow in the end is that the sink is large, but it's not actually infinite. But if you do it with flow, it's infinite. So I think they will never grow. Okay? 
So John engineered two other ways, so multicellular pumps I just showed you, making much more invertase increases the ability of single cells to grow below sucrose concentrations, and you can use the maltose import machinery to import sucrose as well, genetically written right. So these are three different ways that you can grow from low cell density and low sucrose concentrations. And so what John asked is, Normally this is a J for what would Jesus do? But this is what would evolution do? So there are three possible routes it could take. And so we wanted, like I said, to do a sort of minimally preconceived experiment. So what John did is take cells, inoculate them at low density and low sucrose concentrations, wait until they had proliferated and perhaps mutants had arisen. Dilute, oh, wrong direction. Dilute and repeat. Okay, so the actual technical details is you take half a million cells, you put them into 50 mils of medium with one molar sucrose, one millimolar sucrose, which is a low concentration. You wait till they grow to high density, which initially takes about two weeks. So it gets back to Nikolai's question of do the cells grow eventually? The answer is yes. You wash them, you count them, you dilute them. Ooh. You make your frozen fossil record as you go, and you go around this loop about 30 times. And as you do that, the time it takes the cultures to grow to high density decreases from about two weeks to about three days. So they grow much faster. Okay. So fitness, you know, as measured as gross reproductive rate, has increased by a factor of close to five. So this is strong, strong selection. Okay. And then you look at them. Okay. So. John got 12 different clones. Three of the clones actually come from one class. So in one class, there's three independent lineages. All the other class have a dominant lineage. Of those 12 clones, 11 of them are multicellular. One is not, which is how do, how do you determine that? How many clones you have in one class? Um, so he did it primarily phenotypically. So he took individuals out and he grew, he, he isolated clones. And then he asked, you know, how fast do they grow? What do they look like morphologically? So we are making the assumption that things that look morphologically the same are probably genetically the same. Given that the phenotypes, as I'm going to show you on this slide, between different clones morphologically are very, very different, that's probably a fair but not perfect assumption. Right? So what we have not done and would be worth going back and doing is of those clones that he thinks are phenotypically identical, taking, say, five of them and sequencing their genomes and seeing do they have, the, a pro, at least from what we think of the causative mutations, the same mutations or not, which we haven't done. Well, presumably, you want to know that for the clones that are different, too. I mean, yeah, well, so, yeah, so what we've done is for, these tw for the 12 different clones, so I'm, I'm not, again, because John's going to be here, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this in, in the most outline possible way. We sequence their genomes. Right? These experiments were done with mutator strains, so we've elevated the mutation rate about 100-fold. We therefore expect that roughly between 90 and 95% of the mutations are going to be neutral or mildly deleterious mutations that are just coming along for the ride. Okay? To distinguish those mutations from the ones that we believe are causative, we take the evolved strain, we cross it back to its ancestor, we isolate lots of haploid progeny. We select strongly on those haploid progeny. And we therefore argue that any gene that caused the phenotype should be present in all of those selected progeny. 
any allele. Sorry. And any allele that is just coming along for the right should be pressed in half and absent in half. And so we take a big pool and we do deep sequencing and we count the allele frequency for every mutation that is different between the ancestral and the evolved population. And we only concentrate on the ones that have frequencies above 85%. Okay, and we call those the putative causative mutations. Okay, and so we've done that for these 12 funds, and I'll say something very briefly about what we've done. So here is something where the clone size looks a bit suspiciously uniform. Here's one where it looks random. This is Mondo. And this is not only Mondo, but if you look carefully, the morphology of the cells has changed. They're much longer relative to their width. So this is a phenotype called pseudo-hyphal growth in the yeast world. Okay. So this is now when they grow on the plates? No, this is in the shape. This is growing in liquid. Shape or this is growing in liquid. liquid. These, guys are more, these guys are macroscopically visible. Hold the tooth in the right of the Okay? So you can ask, with the um, analysis I just gave you, right? So I was just going to say, we have a way that is believable, and you can ask me, but I just told you roughly what we do, of finding what we think are the putative causative mutation, and we can make a catalog. So across these 12 clones, there are 47 different genes that have non-synonymous mutations. Okay? There are about 70 mutations in total, so the number of mutations per clone is about six on average. There are two common mutations. There is one gene that got mutated in seven clones. This is a gene known whose mutants are known to affect the ability of cells to separate from each other after division. So this is unsurprising. This gene is involved in some completely, in a biochemical process whose role in cell separation or anything else to do with this selection is utterly obscure. Okay? Eight genes were mutated in two clones, and three genes were mutated in three, which means there are 34 genes that were only mutated in one of the clones that we looked at. So the level of parallelism is not so great, even though these adapted the same general strategy, which is to be multicellular. There are three pathways that are frequently mutated. That means we look at prior genetic knowledge, and we say, here's a bunch of genes that function in the same process. How many times have genes in these pathways been mutated? Metabolite repression is the ability of glucose to inhibit the expression of genes required for the metabolism of other less favorable carbon sources. Okay? And it accounts for the fact that when you switch from glucose to some other carbon source, it takes a long time for the cells to get going again. So mutations in that pathway are mutated in 8 out of 12 clones. There's a thing involved in transcription, which is mutated in 5 out of 12. And um, there are genes that are involved in the actual control of cell growth, which is ultimately mediated by cyclic A and P, and they're mutated in four out of 12 months. Can I ask you about the, the catalyte repression? And so you said there was one, one experimental, one evolution line where you found three coexisting types. Did they all have the catalyte repression, or? I, we can we can find my computer and look. I just can't, I can't possibly remember. 
here. What's true, I mean, so what you might worry about with that one that had three clones is that there's some complicated interaction and, and at least one of them depends on the presence of one of the other two. That's not true. They all independently grow well in what sucrose concentration. So I guess that, that would be my follow-up question. Is there any kind of frequency dependence there? That you see that not, 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 the, not, that's the only one where, and we didn't even test frequency dependence. We just tested that each of them independently will grow well in low sucrose. That doesn't exclude the possibility there would be frequency dependent interactions. We just haven't looked, but it's a good question. Yes? About the possible regulatory mutations? There, there are, um, I took them off this slide, and I think the numbers, there are five things that behave genetically as if they're causative mutations which lie outside known open frames. So those are candidates to be promoter mutations. Again, you're welcome to come by and I can pull up. I mean, what I can do, um, if I can get it onto the wiki, I'll, I, this paper is written and submitted and approximately provisionally accepted. I'm more than happy to put it on the wiki. Yes. Uh, so, do you have flask? Do you evolve uh, them? Uh, you evolve them, and then uh, how? Then do you plate them? And uh, how do you select the clone by the size of the clones? The clones, the clones are selected. So the other thing I should say that all of these clumps, we have a test for whether they arise by failure of self separation or by aggregation. They all behave as if they arrive by the failure of cell separation. So the way the clones were actually isolated was by doing limiting dilution. So taking liquid culture, diluting it into microtiter dishes to a point where most of the wells didn't grow anything, and then making the assertion that what grew in those wells was had descended. It may have descended from a clump, but all those cells have the same genotype. And that argument is substantiated by the fact that when we sequence those clones, there's only one genome sequence there. Right, they're not mixed. Okay. And so, uh, just to understand, the, um, in, the, in the previous slide with the, the four uh, phenotypes, yeah. uh, so the random one is uh, one clone? Or? That's one clone. Each one of those, sorry, each one of those things is a clonal population, and that's a heritable phenotype. You can culture them again and again, and they look the same. Yeah. So, and it depends, I mean, you can make models. We've done this in our heads, not mathematically yet, for, you know, you can have a model where every cell division, there's a certain probability that the cells separate or not, and you can make models where the probability of separation changes with the size of the clone. The Trevisano paper that someone was talking about, there's an argument that certain, that it's the linkages to the oldest cells that separate first, and the fancy regulatory mechanisms going on. I'm not convinced by the claims in that paper, and, and we haven't looked in detail. I think there, I mean, Right, I think the difference between these two things is interesting, right? And these are clones, and these, diff and these differences are heritable. And so they suggest that there is something different about the way clumps break up, but we haven't done anything yet to investigate it. And, and do I remember correctly that the shaking is done not in a large flask, but in the, in the context of a 96-well plate? It's a small volume that's being shaken rather than a large volume. 
Now, I think this shaking is... I think this shaking is probably being done, so these pictures are probably being done in the context of a test for what they feel But we need John to be 100% sure. Just one a question on the variation in there. I guess you said you, you knocked out mismatch repair. So the way we actually did it is we knocked out proofreading activity with the DNA polymerases, which is more or less early. It must be something like a 10% chance or 20% that a baby cell has got a deviation. So there's there's got to be huge amounts of variation there. So what I was wondering is whether. Um, whether this reflects genetic variation rather than well, not not so much that, but if, if uh, part of what's, what's emerging here is some kind of cooperation because there are potentially compensatory mutations among clones for for an interaction, if that's making any sense. I mean, there's huge diversity. There has to be huge diversity in these testers. Yeah, there, there does. Um, so the mutation rate, the mutation rate of the ancestral strain is between 10 to the minus 9 and 10 to the minus 10. Yeah, genome size kind of sets up. Right, and then once so the multiplied by 100. Right, so the ancestor has a mutation rate. So if you use 10 to the minus 10, the ancestor has a mutation rate every 1,000 cell division. These guys have a mutation rate once every 10, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So that as a culture grows up in the tube, there will be a great deal of genetic diversity. Right? Um, that genetic diversity will be re reduced periodically by selective sweeps. And, and one of the things that I'm not talking about is you can look at individual alleles that are causative alleles, and we've looked crudely at their frequency over time, and you can see selective sweeps, and you can see guys traveling together. Um, and yeah, well, that would, that would get them. Right. And, and, and so the interesting the, the question is, is there enough genetic diversity and are there enough interactions that, that there get to be complicated social interactions in, the, in these flasks or not? So um, our argument so far is the, the argument I gave before, that if you, if you take clones out of these guys, they look phenotypically similar. And we therefore took one clone and analyzed it in detail. It would not be hard to go back and analyze other clones and at least ask if they have the same cause of mutations. It's more complicated, but possible, to take those guys and put them through the same genetic analysis to look for putative causative mutations and see if they have the same one. It would not surprise me at all if even with things that look phenotypically similar, there's one mutation that's putatively causatively different. Because as you point out, diversity continually grows in these populations until you go through bottlenecks that are due to sweeps. To show that some of those things are sort of compensations for other mutations, we have to do epistasis analysis. And the typical number of causative mutations being on the order of six. Well, this wouldn't be epistasis. I probably use the wrong word. Mutations is even different cells. Okay, so, so you're talking about interactions between different cells. Yeah, so we would have to find guys that had different mutations and then ask if their combined growth rate was higher than the individual growth rates. Um, and I, I guess 
but in answer to the question about the thing that has the three clones, it would be worth doing the experiment of seeing, even though they can grow independently in low sucrose, do they have interesting interactions? For the other guys, my guess is that my ability to persuade someone like John to do the experiment you're suggesting, interesting though, would be as minimal. But we'd be more, anyone who wants to do the experiment, we're totally happy to give stuff to do it. Okay. okay. The reason why you use mutator strains in the first place is just because you know that if you don't, it would take forever. Um, John did it with non-mutators, and not much happened in the, the period that he wanted. Okay. And so, um, in general, we just want to do things. But, but, and doing it without mutators. <coughs> If you do experiments, so the nominal number of cell divisions in these experiments is somewhere between 300 and 500 cell divisions, you will get neutral mutations even if you don't use a mutator. So if you want to find the cause of the mutations, you'll still have to go through this meiotic analysis. You're going to have to do it anyway, so we just argue we want things to go Yes? Do you think you have phenotypic differentiation within a, within a clump like that? We're really interested in that question, whether the cells in the middle are different from the cells on the outside. When John does these simulations of what happens in a clump, imagine that the sucrose is getting hydrolyzed with some probability as it goes past each palisade of cells. The size of the clump needs to be before the guys in the middle are substantially starved is on the order of a 1,000 cells, which is about the size of these guys. And so there are all sorts of interesting questions about that. Um, it's not so easy. I mean, we've been thinking about it. There are ways that it may work to actually experimentally look for it, but it's not trivial to look for. But yes, we're interested in the possibility. And then these are half yeah. These are half right. um, So we can. So the proof of the pudding that these are putative causative mutations is we claim to know which the alleles are that cause the phenotypic chain. So we can engineer those into the ancestral stream and ask, do we get the evolved phenotype, which in two cases out of two, the answer is yes. And we can do the converse experiments. We can take the evolved stream, which contains bowel somewhere between 50 and 150 mutations, and just restore to its ancestral state the ones that we think are causative mutations, and John has done that, and we go back in that direction. So we, so how many do you have to engineer? He, he, one of these strains has eight, and so the other one has eight. Yeah, you do them sequentially, yeah. Sequentially? Yeah, you put one mutation in, and then you put the next one in. So, so you put one in, then you check the phenotype, then you... No, we just, in John's case, he just put one in, and then he put the next one in, and then he oh, put one he got in. Actually, for one of them, he put three in, and checked the phenotype, and he had gone a long way, and then he put the other five in. Right? And and just because you have the fossil record, and presumably you could check the uh, There's all sorts of stuff that could be done. Yes, absolutely, and it's all interesting, and, and, and some fraction of it will get done, absolutely. And we could, in principle, you know, we could cross the reconstructed strain to its ancestors, so they differ by eight mutations. They're in principle 256 different combinations, and we could study epistasis by looking at all of those 256. Okay. If you looked at the yeast, uh, the, the wild type yeast, actually, the, the, as you said, shoot clump, how close is your evolved uh, yeast from the 
original wild type that is uh, not the one that you have in the lab. So the only thing I can say, I mean, it's, I mean, in terms of nucleotide substitutions, there are very many, right? Because of domestication and, and the original strains that were domesticated were actually made by interbreeding various different strains from the wild. <coughs> the only thing I can say that is sort of useful and rigorous is I showed you that mutation, which has happened under domestication to make the cells more unicellular. None of our clones have reverted that mutation to its ancestral state. Okay, so in that sense, they didn't go back the same way they went forward. Okay? But one last thing to say about this. So Stephen Jay Gould made this argument about evolution through selection for one trait produces a trait that selection can later act on in an interesting way. And, and he used the argument that these were the equivalent of spandrels. So this is an arch. This is a cross beam in some Renaissance area. You're a building. You don't need anything in this hole here. Right, but people put stuff and they make it look pretty. This is called a spangle. Okay, and the Gould argument is that things like that happen in evolution can later be used for other things. That they're sort of inadvertent consequences of selection A, which at some later time will answer selection B. And here is possibly such an example. So this is one of these strains. This is what it looks like when you grow it in one millimolar sucrose. This is what it looks like in one millimolar glucose plus fructose, which is what you get if you hydrolyze one millimolar sucrose. And it looks very different, and therefore this could be a way of regulating dispersal, but we didn't select for that. And the last thing to say about this stuff is, well, why do cells do this anyway? Right? If they imported the sucrose, they wouldn't be in this density dependence. And there are two possibilities. There is some sort of historical constraint, which means it had to be done this way and was then difficult to change at one stage. And the other is that there's actually selection because under some stage of yeast life cycle, this actually confers an advantage. Right. So you now have two choices. We can stop here, or I could talk. So there are two more topics. One division of labor, the student who did it, Mary Wool, is going to come here. And so I'll just leave it, and, and you can talk to her. So we can engineer division of labor and show that multicellularity helps the cells that have divided labor fend off sheets. Right? But the thing that no one will come up and talk about is this gentleman, Greg Wilderberg, who involves something that looks and behaves a little bit like a circadian clock. So depending on your choice, I can stop here and talk about that. I keep going. I propose you keep going with this topic till at least noon. Oh, okay. All right. So this is Greg Wildenberg. This is a bottle of beer. All right. So I'm going to claim that evolution is a selection for computation. And I'm now going to define computation, as John Hotfield would do, as a rule-based transformation of symbols. And here is the example I like to use. This is a French phrase, filet à l'anglaise. It can be translated, not directly, to take French leave. Okay? So in France, this means to leave the room without asking permission. It is to run away like the perfidious English. <laughs> in English, this means exactly the same, to leave the room like the French without asking permission. <laughs> right? 
So I'm going to claim that one of the things that organisms are, are selected to do is to predict and prepare for their future. <laughs> and I'm going to make the following argument. Everything you or any other organism knows about its environment is information from the past, and anything it plans to do is in the future. So when I speak to you, sound waves are emanated. By the time you get to your ear, time has already elapsed. Things have to vibrate. There has to be higher processing. You have to deconstruct it into individual words. You have to construct meaning out of it. And if you want to jump up and tackle me because I've said something particularly outrageous, you have to formulate a plan of action for the future. And so my assertion is that a lot of evolution is about organisms dealing with this temporal gap between when they get information and a future that they have to deal with. And so here are some pictures. Um, this is a batting average converted into physicists' lingo. Okay. This is Harrison's chronometer, which was um, helpful in defeating the French Navy. It meant that the British knew where they were to see better than the French. Because you need to, to, to tell latitude, you need to keep time precisely. And um, longitude. Longitude. Thank you, David. I, I'm not a geographer. Okay. Uh, it was the wrong word. Okay, and this is a problem actually David Nelson and other people worked on. The data from this very careful Frenchman, Kurilski, showed that if one lambdaphage infects a cell, the cells are likely to lyse and release more lambdaphage, and if two lambdaphage infect the cell, it is more likely that the lambdaphage will quietly enter the cell's genome and produce a lysogen which can release phage at some indeterminate future date. And the argument that physicists have made is that lambda has learned about Poisson statistics, right? That if there's one phage in the cell, there are probably uninfected cells who it is worth infecting. And if there are two, there are less likely to be some cells. And these are a couple of references to more recent papers about issues about prediction. The, the best exemplar of prediction is the circadian clock. So um, David and I, on Monday night, went out to dinner early because we were still on East Coast time. Right? I at least think got up much earlier than I normally do the next morning. And that's the result of the fact that I have an involved device for predicting when the sun is going to rise and it just gets fooled by the speed of modern air travel. Okay. And so we thought maybe we could evolve something that looks a bit like a circadian clock. At least partly, I will admit, because this is the sort of thing that people in the intelligent design world say is irreducible complexity and sort of fun to show. Okay? So the scheme is we're going to select, proliferate, select, but in a particular regime. So, oh, great. Okay, so there is a very faint green wash that you can maybe see there, okay? And this is selecting for the cells that have the least of that green wash, okay? Okay, this is the morning. So you select for the cells that express the smallest amount of a fluorescent protein. So you do this using a fluorescence activated cell sort, which measures the amount of fluorescence per cell. You allow them to proliferate from morning till evening. And in evening, now the bar is at the top of this Gaussian. You select the brightest cells. And you allow them to proliferate. And then in the morning, you select the dimmest cells. So here's the Gaussian. 
And here are the decals, the strain, and I'll say what these things are, you don't have to use, learn yeast and nomenclature. This is a haploid cell and it says this is its mating type. Unexpectedly it turns out this is very important in the behavior of the evolved strains. This is the gene whose, and these guys do not switch their mating type. Uh, they don't? No. All the strains that people, approximately all the strains that people use in the lab do not. Most of the strains that are isolated from the wild do. It is generally speaking a pain in the ass in the lab, so it's been mutationally inactivated during domestication. Okay? This is the gene whose expression we monitor, so this is the promoter of a particular gene. Okay? which is known to show epigenetic variation, which comes back to your question about how important is epigenetic variation. And we picked it for that reason and hooked it up to a fluorescent protein. And this is the mutant form of DNA polymerase that raises the mutation rate a factor of 100. Okay, so now we appear to have changed, interchanged the visibility of the washes. Okay, so this is, this is the distribution in the morning. This faint blue thing are the 6% dimmest cells. They get picked. They get divided all day without any sort of selection. And at night time, we pick the brightest 6%. We go around that cycle. So it's something like 10 cell divisions a day, approximately between these two periods of proliferation and that selection was done for 30 days. And when you say day and night, there's actually different light levels in the lab? Or? Uh, there are, but they are irrelevant. So, so I guess what I should say is we're not shooting so high as to hope that light regulates the phase of the clock and in the same way that the East Coast people's clocks will eventually get in trained to California time just in time for them to go back to the East Coast or France or wherever. Um, we're, we're hoping that we can get a cycle that is approximately 24 hours so that the clock is synchronized by the act of selection, not by some response to the environment. It could have been done. Uh, it could have been done in total darkness. Absolutely. Or three in the afternoon and three, three in the afternoon. In fact, you can reverse morning and night without problem. So, which tells us that it's not responding to some trivial environmental variation of the cell. Sorry? It, it, it could have been done also in uh, less or more than 24 hours. Yes, absolutely. It's just that 24 hours sort of works well for the experiment. <laughs> How are you selecting? <laughs> yeah. Are you uh, like picking colonies in this case? No, no, no. Okay, sorry. So, so, blah, blah, blah. So the, the fluorescence activated cell sorter is a device by which the cells are confined in a very narrow fluid flow by some sheet flow, and they go past a laser. And you scatter light, which is a way of knowing a cell is there. And then you also get fluorescence, so you measure um, emission at a different wavelength. So the cells go down one by one, or so we thought, so this will come up. But the, the, at least the way to think about it conceptually is the cell go down one by one, you shine light at them, you ask how fluorescent they are, and if they are in the morning below and in the evening above a threshold, you apply a voltage as these little droplets come out and you send them to one tube or the other. And you can do 
ridiculous numbers of cells quite quickly. Yes. Uh, sorry, last question. Uh, the, the average is constant? Um, well, at least at the beginning it is. And I'll show you what it looks like at the end, okay? which will help answer your question. So you could keep your lab happy by uh, keeping the 24-hour cycle by changing the growth rate of the yeast because it seems like a pretty important ingredient because there's many generations, I guess. Right, so they, could, so they could be measuring time or they could be counting cell divisions. And so Greg is currently trying to sort out, having involved the phenotype, which of the two it is by precisely the sort of manipulation you're talking about. And the answer is, I think it is emerging that they appear to be measuring time more than they are counting cell divisions, but all the experiments are not yet finished. So in answer to Nicolas' question, at the end of the experiment, this is what the profile looks like in the morning. And this is what the profile looks like in the evening, and as you cycle, they go back and forth. Right? So the peak in the evening is bimodal, and so I'm looking at this, and I'm like, well, great, you're just part of the way through, and you clearly have some mutant guys who have changed the level of gene expression per cell, and if you keep selecting, this peak will predominate and this one will go away. And so we did this a few more cycles and nothing happens to the relative heights of the peak. And then we resorted to what we should have done a lot earlier, which was we looked at the cells. So in the morning. So this is after 30 rounds? Or this is after about 30 rounds. So if you look in the morning, they are mostly, but not exclusively, single cells. And you look in the evening, they look quite different. Okay? And the facts. When this says number of cells, this shouldn't really say number of cells. This is number of events, right? So actually, the vast majority of cells are here, because each event here is composed of multiple cells, whereas each event here is composed of single cells. And in fact, you can demonstrate that by collecting these guys separately from these guys. Okay. But you hooked up uh, this thing to the flocculation uh, gene, right? Slow one, is that slow uh, for flocculation? <coughs> Ah, it's very bad to have knowledgeable people in the audience, isn't it? Yes, we did. So we hooked this gene up to the promoter of a gene involved in flocculation. Okay? Because, simply because that promoter is known to show epigenetic variability. Right? As far as we can tell, because this is part of the answer to Nicolas' question, the level of expression of this gene per cell has not changed one iota. And in fact, there is a control gene in these cells where the actin promoter drives a different color fluorescence. And I have lied to you because this is actually the fluorescence of the reporter hooked up to the actin gene rather than the flow one gene because in fact, because there's less epigenetic variability, this bimodality is more apparent. Okay? So, and even more, you know, the awkward question, these cells form clumps not because they fail to separate, but because they stick to each other. Okay? So that could involve flocculation. What we think, and what I was not planning to say, is one of the mutations in this strain has affected the expression of genes that are normally silent which include genes in the mating pathway. So this business about mating type switching, which two people have referred to. 
Every cell, be it A or alpha, has a silent cassette. It has a silent A and it has a silent alpha. And when it switches mating type, it's literally like popping the tape out of your tape deck, throwing it out the window of your car and putting the new tape in. Those loci have to be kept silent for the cells to behave as mating competent haploids. One of the mutations that Greg has found is a putative positive mutation. Um, interferes with that silencing. And only in crosses, the only cells that show this cycling are A cells. So we think there are some comp that the cells are a little bit intersexual and they're actually it's as if they are trying to make two. So we don't think this involves the flocculation genes per se. It's the long and complicated answer to question. Uh, and the, 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 is, is the passage through the facet necessary? Namely, <coughs> if you stop... Uh, Will a clock free run? Right. So Greg has done that experiment, which is painful because it means staying up for 48 hours. You know, because you want to take... You don't want to just do time points every 12 hours. <coughs> so it free runs through 48 hours. The amplitude goes down. So the fluctuation goes down. We... So there are two possibilities. It's not really a limit cycle oscillator. It's some sort of damp oscillator. It's responding to some environmental variation. We prefer the possibility, but cannot rigorously demonstrate, that it is a limit cycle oscillator, but there's substantial heterogeneity in the phase and the cells are just getting out of sync. Right? And, you cannot, and you cannot look at the clone. Well, we can't. This is a clone. This is a clone, right? But we're talking about non-genetic individuality variation. No, no, no. This is a clone, right? And if it was, um, uh, you know, Sinecococcus, the sort of thing that Stannis worked on, you know, the cycles are incredibly regular in duration, and the population stays in sync. But that's millions of years of evolution. And this is less. Yes. How do you know you're not recruiting some existing circadian mechanism that's silent? You know, you're just activating it with the selection process. We do not. Okay. Um, if you try, we don't. And it's not necessarily an easy possibility to rule out. So I think what we have to do is understand what. So this is n equals one. Okay. And so we made the decision that rather than doing lots of parallel experiments, Looking at them, we're going to actually try and do sort of actual molecular analysis to try and understand how the oscillator works. Like if we can, if we can demonstrate that we can understand the mechanism of an oscillation and it depends on all these genes, I think we will at least be able to construct an Occam's razor argument that we have produced a clock rather than couples of pre-existing ones. But it's it's a it's not a particularly easy question to resolve. Have you fed? Uh the mutants back into the ancestral line and you know play the game you did before to figure out which genes yeah yeah we have and, and so what's happened in this case is the initial reconstruction failed so we did more genetic analysis and we found a couple more putative candidates and we are on the order between a week and a month away from testing something which we think has all the right mutations so we're not quite there yet but yes we're going in that direction is there a pearl gene or a plug gene that is known absolutely not Right, there are no obvious homologs to any gene that is, is known from circadian cycles and things like the hospital. Right? But, but, but the question you're asking is, we don't know how, 
you know, how we can synchronize ourselves to look for a clock. And you can try light, and you can try temperature, and you can ask, do you see anything go up and down? There is a report in the literature that claims there is. To me, it looks much more like the moment you stop forcing things, the cycle disappears instantly. But it's a matter of taste. It's a driven oscillator. What? It's a, it's a driven oscillator. Yeah. yeah. And have you, uh, has somebody else done that in E. coli? Or where the genetic would be easier? Now, this is probably, my claim is that for the sort of experiment we're doing, yeast is easier than E. coli doing the genetic analysis. Where to God? It's a spatial order in the synchronization, so they are mostly synchronized locally. Sorry, I don't quite understand what you mean by the question. It's a spatial order for the synchronization, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, these cells are being grown in flasks, so it's not clear what we mean by close together, right? And, and right, and so there are interesting questions about whether this is a collective phenomenon or not, which we haven't answered, right? So we don't know yet whether this is some sort of social oscillation or it's literally a limit cycle oscillator that runs in individual cells. And it will take some time to figure out we can't answer it. Have you tried to boost it by uh, coupling it to some other uh, process that occurs over the same time scale? Like, for example, change the environment in such a way that uh, you'll have roughly the same uh, time scale might, that might uh, boost up the process selection. We've thought of trying to, having produced something that looks like a clock, we've thought of trying to evolve entrainment by changing the environment in some way. But we haven't done it. So does the fluorescence uh, individual cell modulate at all? Or is uh, all modulation So, So I guess what, what I should say to be careful and answer to your question. If we look at two time points, morning and evening, and we try and monitor the average fluorescence per cell, it does not appear to be different. That does not exclude the possibility that there are variations in the fluorescence of individual cells which are not necessarily coupled to the circadian regime. But if you just look at mean fluorescence per cell in morning and evening, it is within our ability to measure which is, let's say, less than two-fold variation. It's the same. So, even a question. And uh, um, just monitoring them continuously for 24 hours? We haven't done it. It would just happen. We could do it. We have not. We'll take a cell with an antiphase. You mean if you selected for the dim guys in the evening and the bright guys in the morning? No, after you, you've gone with the selection. And now you just uh, look at the cells and select those that, uh, that uh, deviate from what you would expect. So instead of being... Uh, like if you, if you say, say that in the evening you expect to see high floors, okay? But you pick those that, that have low floors. In the evening, you pick the evening, and the yeah. ones that are bright in the so morning. So if, if you come in the morning, then they will have high fluorescence? Uh, 
So that's an interesting question. What I can tell you is if you flip the selection ratio, so all of a sudden one night you take the dim guys and the bright guys in the morning, so now you just, you've changed dim and bright between morning and evening, you, you just flip when they're bright and when they're dim, when they're clumps and when they're dark. So they're still clumps when they're bright? Yeah. The, 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 but I don't know specifically the answer to your question, which is if you do, in the first month, if you take the dim cells in the evening and you ask whether they're bright in the morning. I think, what I think, based on talking to Greg about this and seeing something like that, is they would still be dim. So basically, what I think happens is there's, there's some sort of epigenetic change over a 24-hour cycle so that the cells stop being sticky sometime in the evening. Okay. Now as the cells divide, they become single cells. Okay. Sometime after the selection in the morning, they start becoming sticky and they stick together. Okay. So my suspicion is the cells in the evening that are single cells are just cells that have jumped the gun a little on becoming unsticky. And they might, they might be a little brighter on average in the morning, but not very much. Anyway, I mean, the cells without, without phenotype, they're, they're the worst off and under this selection regime, so they are out of phase. So. But I can, I can send an email to Greg, because I, I mean, I'm sure he's done this and I can give you an answer, but I don't, I don't know it off the top of my head. But, but I think that's what will happen. Okay? Well, no, no, I'm just trying to figure out, should we, here, let's make this the last question and stop, because this has been long enough. Yes. Actually, I'm a bit puzzled because uh, the evening, you, you select the, the brightest uh, cells, so it means that you select the, the clumps, mm -hmm. okay, and you let them grow uh, during the night. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the morning, what you get is a distribution that is uh, peaked, uh, that has not a double peak. So it means that you don't have clumps anymore. So I thought. Right, so the question is what happens to, so there are two possible things that happen to the clumps. Okay. One is, the, let's say once 6 p.m. has been passed, every cell division in that clump gives rise to cells that are not part of the clump. Right? So the cells in the clump keep dividing, but they give rise to cells that are not part of the clump. And the cells that have been produced like that keep dividing and give rise to single cells. So if that was true, the number of unclumped cells would go up, let's say there are five divisions between evening and morning, by a factor of 32. So there would be a small number of residual clumps left, but they would be vastly outnumbered by single cells. Right? The other possibility is that the not only do clumps give rise to the divisions of cells within clumps, not only do they give rise to single cells, but the clumps themselves actually dissolve. Right? And it's occurred to us that we should look at this question seriously. What I can tell you is there are some clumps left in the morning, but whether their number is such that we would have to conclude that some of the clumps have dissolved and others have persisted, we just haven't done the analysis to that level of precision. One question. Um, is there a natural conclusion you can 
Yeah, I think the natural the natural conclusion is that Mary Wool will be here, and he'll get her to talk about what she did. All right, great. All right. Thank you, Andrew.